The prices received by ranchers versus those received by packers for beef is continuing to diverge. Could there be major policy or market changes on the horizon to curb that phenomenon? That's today on Field Posts. Fieldpost is a DTN progressive farmer podcast that dives deeper into the most important trends in agriculture to explore the business's cutting edge. I'm your host, Sarah Mock. Since the Tyson-Holcomb fire of 2019, the spread between the prices received for box beef by U.S. packers and those received by live cattle producers have diverged significantly. Market shocks from the global pandemic created even more market havoc. And over the intervening months, concerns from lawmakers, USDA officials, and cattle producers have grown as cattle prices have declined while box beef prices continue to soar. Today, we're joined by DTN Ag Policy Editor Chris Clayton to talk about what might be on the horizon, from extended Department of Justice investigations to antitrust policy changes. We'll dig into political reactions, the role of major packers in this market, how exports continue to impact the situation, and so much more right after this word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by MyDTN. In today's environment, it's essential more than ever to get the most current and accurate information to help save your valuable resources and continue to be profitable. Get access to all the information you need to deal with this change from DTN. As the leading independent trusted source of actionable insights and market information, MyDTN gives you accurate weather forecasts, the most extensive database of grain bids, and the most timely news and analysis from our award-winning news team. These features and more are available 24-7 via desktop, laptop, and any mobile device to be with you on the go. Learn more at MyDTN.com and start a free 14-day trial. Now, back to the show. DTN Ag Policy Editor Chris Clayton joins us today to talk about a story that's been in the spotlight recently, but that has been years in the making. Chris, first question is just kind of, you know, we've heard really a kind of unprecedented coming together of voices, you know, in a space that is usually that has in the past been much more divided. Talk to us, you know, from your perspective, having followed this story for a while, what is kind of, I don't know, what, what's the story of how we got to where we are right now on kind of the, the beef packing, beef pricing story? Well, it's been two years of really seeing the, um, the price spreads between um, the live cattle prices and the box beef prices. Um, it hit record levels when you had the, uh, the fire in the Holcomb uh, Kansas at the Tyson plant, you saw this record spread uh, between uh, what the packers were getting and what the uh, producers were getting. Uh, but it carried on and uh, it certainly really peaked in um, April and May, June of 2020, the height of the pandemic when you had uh, packing plant workers getting sick, plants shutting down that spread between the live cattle price and the box beef price became even bigger, uh, became a bigger record. 
but it's carried forward and it's continued on. And this spring, again, seeing this, saw the same kind of repeated theme where the Packers were getting uh, huge uh, profits and the, the livestock producers were not. Uh, so it has really festered um, going back to the August 2019 uh, fire in, uh, in Tyson. But there's, there's something to, to be said that it seems like maybe the Packers have figured out maybe, maybe it's okay that we're not processing at 100% capacity. You know, we, we know from quarterly reports that uh, Tyson and JBS have gotten really strong profits out of their beef segments uh, in the past couple of quarters. So um, it doesn't necessarily behoove them to, you know, pay more to workers to bring more workers in necessarily because they know they have a large supply of cattle out there. Uh, they can continue processing at the, at the pace that they're at and they're getting continue getting really strong profits because of high demand. Exports are really high. Domestic demand is really high. So they're feeling really good from the Packer side of things that the, the way things are at right now. Uh, and they can give you 20, 30 different excuses of, of why things are where they're at. But, um, but the real reality is they don't have any great need or desire to have to increase capacity at the moment. Um, but uh, the producer side, you know, they're getting pinched from one side now because grain prices are, are much higher. So it's really eating at them when it comes to um, uh, when it comes to uh, what they're having to pay for their inputs, so to speak. Uh, but at the same time, they're not getting the benefit uh, that the Packers are getting. They're not seeing those stronger prices. You've got hog prices now that are even higher than live cattle prices. So that was kind of a great walkthrough of kind of these, the, the fire, the Kansas fire first was, you know, kind of this, we thought of it at the time, even as a black swan event, there was some conversation amongst both politicians and, and USDA officials, even back then about potentially the need for an investigation or, or a broader understanding of what happened at, after the fire. Um, and then, you know, coming into 2020 COVID created another black swan event uh, that then, you know, kind of explained away some of the things that were happening. Um, talk to, talk a little bit about how politicians and folks at USDA have, how have, has their perspective shifted as we've gone from, you know, first the fire, then COVID now today and, and what needs to be done about this disparity? Well, lawmakers, you know, members of Congress have, uh, gotten a lot of, um, tracks and by uh, thumping their chests and, and putting out press releases and uh, calling for DOJ investigations, things of that nature. Um, but nothing has really moved. There have been tons of proposals uh, from um, Senators Grassley and Tester, John Thune, um, Senator Rounds, uh, and so on, um, you know, House members as well. But nothing has really moved anywhere. The House Ag Committee hasn't held any hearings on this situation. Finally, we have a hearing in the Senate Agriculture Committee. So it's it's been a tremendous amount of lip service um, that uh, you know they feel the plight of the cattle producer, and by God, they want to do something about it. 
that they have yet to really do uh, coalesce around doing something about it. Um, at uh, uh, USDA, you're kind of split because we were in the Trump administration um, and what they wanted to do. And, um, you know, they were sitting in at USDA, they were focusing on letting uh, the Department of Justice uh, take the lead. And uh, we know that um, the Department of Justice back a year ago uh, in May and June of 2020 issued subpoenas to packing plants for information. And we haven't seen anything from that. Um, everybody on the outside looking in at the Department of Justice has been clamoring, what did justice find? And uh, the Department of Justice has this, uh, you know, more or less rule or policy going back quite a ways that they don't share information about uh, ongoing investigations while it's happening. Uh, but uh, that was one of the things that um, the five or six uh, livestock groups and agricultural groups that got together last month in Phoenix uh, when they put out a joint statement, one of the things that they really highlighted, emphasized was that DOJ needs to open up and tell us what they found out. Um, but you still have, um, you know, 80 to 85% of packing capacity still controlled by uh, four major players. Uh, the USDA um, has tried and going back to uh, uh, Sonny Purdue, and now under Vilsack, they've been trying to offer us some grant money, some loans, try to get small produce, small packing plants, small processors uh, to expand, make it easier for them to sell meat across state lines, try to do the different things that they can, but it's still really hard to, uh, to balance out the fact, you know, when you have one or two packing plants that, um, you know, may process thousands of animals per day and you're trying to replace that capacity uh, with, uh, you know, dozens of small little plants around the country. Uh, it, it's just very hard to, uh, uh, to make all that happen in, in a quick time, so to speak. Uh, so it, there's been a, a lot of talk, but we really haven't seen uh, legislative action. And, um, one thing we know, uh, uh, well, adding on to that, you know, the uh, Biden administration bill sack uh, came out uh, a week or two ago and announced that they were going to propose new rules on uh, for the Packers and Stockyards Act. And they basically dusted off some rules that uh, they proposed uh, under the under the Obama administration. I mean, they almost look verbatim uh, in some sense. Uh, they never, they never, they were never finalized under Obama. Um, and USDA under Trump, really, they just finalized their fair marketing rules back in December of, of last year. So, you know, this whole thing in terms of trying to create rules that make things a little fairer for producers, going back 10 10, 12 years now, and we still haven't gotten anything that, um, that makes a dent or improves the, the Packers and Stockyards Act. 
Yeah, I want long answer, but uh, you know. Yeah, no, it was great Um, because yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of different players, a lot of different moving pieces to this, you know, especially as this issue evolves. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on, um, you know, I think one of the the things that has changed since maybe the beginning of the year in the last few months at least um, is some big trade groups getting on board with, you know, at least calling for the DOJ uh, investigation that you mentioned. Um, you know, we saw NCBA first have a, a, a major break with JBS and then, you know, come join with American Farm Bureau and a, a bunch of other organizations to call for this. Is that, does, in your, you know, in your experience, is that a sea change there that's happening? Or is this just, you know, in a lot of ways, kind of like what we see with um, policymakers where it's just, you know, this is, it it is, a, a big demand of producers, but what, what the groups are asking for is not necessarily like a very significant diversion from what is already happening. Uh, it, I think it's somewhat of a, a evolution within CBA. Um, they have uh, had certainly some of their members really frustrated uh, over time with, um, with, their, with where NCBA stood with the more of uh, uh, how do you say uh, laissez-faire kind of view on uh, uh, on packing rules and um, you know dealing with um, some of these uh, market concentration issues in CBA is kind of uh, uh, they will argue more that we need to do more on trade they will argue we need to do more on um, uh, you know increasing market transparency but they really have been uh, reluctant uh, for instance to mandate more live cattle trade uh, which has been something that uh, like senators grassley and tester uh, senator deb fisher from nebraska they have all proposed uh, these bills to uh, mandate more uh, live cattle trade in the market as a way to uh, increase, um, uh, basically increase transparency and increase, um, you know, uh, the ability for independent producers to sell cattle. But um, NCBA has uh, been very resistant to, um, to those proposals. And so there's still not, quote, you know, any real consensus among the cattle groups on, on what exactly should happen. Um, and, um, and then it's kind of that way with, um, you know, making uh, too many changes with the Packers and Stockyards Act. NCBA is a little more reluctant there to, uh, uh, when it comes to some of these uh, proposals uh, for, uh, um, for changing the rules for Packers. And um, uh, so it, um, that's what's going to be kind of interesting when we uh, have finally have hearings is... Uh, is just what kind of consensus is there to really get a legislative fix? Yeah, I'm curious whether, you know, from in your reporting, especially as you talk to ranchers and, and maybe some smaller producers about some of these issues, I think I'm, I'm curious whether people are surprised to hear, um, you know, that it, it is, when you think about it, it's a little counterintuitive that, you know, both the big packers and, individual producers are part of NCBA and like represented by the same group given, you know, especially on this, in this case, they, those two groups are the specific groups that have opposite interests. Um, are you seeing, you know, in conversations you've had with ranchers, first of all, I'm just curious about 
what you're hearing from them, what, what, you know, individuals are thinking about what's going on. And then are you starting to hear any kind of like shifting perspectives on how, you know, individuals are feeling like the industry should be moving forward? Uh, not really just, you know, tremendous frustration, um, from, uh, from producers and, um, um, I haven't heard any, um, really strong NCBA supporters coming out and, um, you know, switching their affiliations sort of thing. Um, you know, the cattle industry, everybody's kind of been in their corners for a while, uh, on some of these things. They've tried to migrate together, um, and it's been very hard to kind of find consensus. But, you know, if you talk to someone from RCAF, uh, they believe, you know, flat 100% that um, there should not be any single packer ownership of any animals whatsoever until, um, you know, the cattle are bought uh, right before they go to slaughter. Well, NCBA, you know, they've got, they represent some feeders who have some really big contracts with, um, uh, with direct ties with packers, you know, and so uh, uh, there's always been that kind of battle and resistance of um, uh, between these different organizations and just who they represent. And, 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 you know, NCBA is, is the big the big dog, so to speak, when it comes to the cattle groups. And, and part of that is that close relationship that they have within the industry with so many different uh, companies and, and businesses uh, and, uh, or, um, and, and the other trade groups. And, and you see that, um, and, and I think that becomes a problem with almost any trade association anymore it, it becomes very difficult when you're when you're also somewhat married to the uh, to the industry in a different ways you know if you go to the uh, you know a big ncba meeting you're going to see lots of sponsorships from big corporations uh and you've got the tie in with the uh the cattlemen's beef board um and the checkoff and the check off the, the tie in with the beef board and the federation, which is in CBA. But, uh, you know, you have all of this different mixed relationship uh, over uh, these different um, uh, business arrangements. Um, and that makes it a little, little more difficult for them to just be seeing things from the side of uh, the small ranchers, so to speak, uh, you know. You know, a meeting from RCAF and a meeting at NCBA are two totally different affairs. Uh, you know, you go to an RCAF meeting, there's no sponsorship from anybody because the RCAF has done a good job of really ticking everybody off over time. Uh, you know, it, it's not that way at, at, a, at an NCBA meeting because there's just a huge amount of money that will go into one of those events. So. Um, and, and that makes it, uh, makes it a little more, um, nuanced, I guess, so to say, so to speak. Totally. I am curious to, to switch gears a little bit back to, you know, so the, the big call, the big kind of uniting thing from a number of different kind of stakeholders in this, uh, in this issue is it's called for a DOJ report. There's one ongoing about the Kansas fire potentially. And there was some, you talked a little bit about, 
Um, you know, some subpoenas went out and some information has been gathered and no one really knows what is in there. Folks are now looking for maybe more information or, you know, to learn more about what's happening there, maybe for that investigation to expand. Um, for, you know, as someone who's been following this story for a little while, what can a DOJ investigation do? Like, what, what is the outcome of a DOJ investigation? Is it a lawsuit? Is it a, you know, a law change? What are, I don't know, what's the consequence there? Um, that's a great question because um, if you look at so many different other industries, um, yeah, there's so much focus right now on, um, on antitrust issues. Uh, everybody has gotten too big. Um, whether you're talking about technology or Amazon and uh, uh, Microsoft and um, all of these big uh, technology companies, the social media, et cetera, uh, Facebook. And then you look at the, and then you deal with uh, the, cattle industry and the consolidation that you've seen in uh, in packing industries I, I don't know if the antitrust division at the department of justice has the capacity to deal with uh, you know taking the packers and stockyards act or uh the clayton antitrust act or some of these other laws and aggressively enforcing it on the packing industry right now when they have got so many other um, industries and scenarios to look at where you're dealing with the same kind of same kind of concentration issues. Uh, where does the packing industry fall in line with, uh, with some of these issues? Um, you know, they may come out with a report and say, you know, we need to make changes to the Packers and Stockyards Act that would give uh, producers more um, uh, more influence or, or more ability to um, uh, to challenge Packers on some of these things. Well, then that means you're going back to Congress and trying to have Congress rewrite a law that is 100 years old now. Um, and, uh, you know, the Agriculture Secretary Vilsack has kind of alluded, has pointed that out. You know, we're still relying on a 100-year-old law to try to tell us how to regulate a, uh, a modern modern changes in the industry. Um, the one thing I, I, you know, we still have the Livestock Mandatory Price Reporting Act that uh, is supposed to be reauthorized and changed by the end of the year. Um, that's an area where even uh, NCBA has proposed changes to open up and, um, excuse me, and give producers more insights in terms of, uh, of what other people are getting for their, for their livestock, uh, you know, allow contracts to be, you know, um, reviewed, but doing it in a way that doesn't necessarily, you know, invade somebody's private business, private businesses. Uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Doesn't invade their privacy more or less doesn't, uh, but, but still allows other producers to know that, Oh, so-and-so or, or at least uh, some people are getting this amount of money because they sold on this grid or this formula contract or whatever. Uh, I deserve to get that kind of money because my cattle are that great. Uh, but so there are different changes that are being proposed that uh, might come out of it that uh, uh, 
changed the Livestock um, Mandatory Price Reporting Act. Um, I, I do think that maybe, you know, you will begin to see as some of the seed money gets sprinkled out from USDA and maybe even from states and other things that you will begin to see producers kind of coming together to, um, to try to start packing plants or expand meat lockers into smaller packing plants. You see that in the pork industry. Um, yeah, pork producers, there are you know, multiple packing plants that are, were actually started by you know, several major um, um, pork producers. So I, I think you will see that, maybe might see that a little bit in the, in the beef industry, but uh, it's gonna take time to, um, to develop and grow. Um, so I, I think that it's still a little bit of a, uh, a difficult situation for, uh, for individual producers. Something else that may eventually come out of this as well is uh, the, the CME group might eventually have a, uh, a box beef contract um, they did it for the pork cutout um, after there was uh, calls and, uh, and focuses um, in the pork industry for a pork cutout uh, because there were so few pork, so few hogs being traded on the live contract that, you know, it kind of mandated or demanded that they needed a pork cutout price that would allow producers to hedge against that. So now uh, CME has created a uh, box beef index to take a look at. And, and that's just there to look at the price and say, oh, this is what it is. It doesn't allow you to trade on anything. But eventually I think CME will create a box beef uh, cutout uh, contract that will allow producers to trade against that. And that will provide a little bit more uh, risk management hedge against uh, um, what producers may be able to get. Um, it'll help some of them, you know, you're a small producer, you're selling 50 cattle uh, every so often. Uh, you probably don't want to play with the big dogs like that, but, uh, but it will allow some of these feeders, I think particularly a little larger feeders to, uh, to hedge a little better against some of the risk, so. Yeah, I'm curious as well about, you know, talking about these kind of hundred year old laws and what a time with the recent hack at JBS to, to realize that like, you know, we are operating in a fundamentally different world where there's things that not only have changed dramatically within the existing systems and how packers work and how, you know, business operations work, but fundamentally like could not have predicted, you know, the rise of the internet and how important that is even in the packing space. Um, is there, have there been big policy changes at USDA in recent years that gives you, that makes you optimistic that maybe some kind of, you know, significant rewrite of the Packers and Stockyards Act might actually be possible? Not really. I mean, we had this fight 10 years ago under Obama um, and it started out, you know, um, you had this, uh, you know, they called it at the time historic. It was certainly unique. You had the Department of Justice and USDA going around the country together, looking at every individual industry in, in agriculture. Uh, they held five or six of these ginormous meetings around the country. It started off with uh, the seed companies 
Um, and since that time, we've actually seen more consolidation in the seed industry <laughs> since they start. They held a hearing. Uh, before then, we had Monsanto. Uh, Syngenta was not owned by Kim China. Um, Corteva was two multiple companies, Dow and DuPont. Uh, since they held that hearing in uh, Iowa, it was a big hearing in Iowa they held on the seed industry. All of those have consolidated into three different companies now. So that just reflects that, you know, great amounts of talk within with uh, the Department of Justice and USDA doesn't necessarily translate into the industry reacting the way that they want. But uh, there was a big meeting on the cattle industry in Fort Collins, Colorado, uh, that they had with Department of Justice and um, and and USDA, and that was a knockdown, drag out. Uh, brawl uh, almost. Uh, there were just hundreds of producers there. Everybody had a different opinion uh, of what should happen and what was going on. And, you know, it was, it was just a, a heated environment. Um, well, then the antitrust uh, lawyer who was in charge of DOJ at that time left and the whole thing collapsed. And, and, and um, so we've had this kind of situation happened before and at the end of the day we end up with a report that sits on a bookshelf somewhere and you never see it you know they they did put out a report on that uh all of those meetings and stuff uh, it was a it, it was a giant nothing burger um so uh you can't just expect that the usda and department of justice are going to come out and wave some sort of magic wand and change things because We've seen promises made before and that nothing actually ends up happening at the end of the day. Yeah. So, you know, as we move, I want to talk about a little bit about maybe what's next. And, you know, I think there is a suspicion maybe um, that as we move into a late COVID and potentially soon, hopefully post COVID world, um, and maybe things in the broader economy either start to, you know, start to change. I don't know. We're looking at like inflation now and all kinds of crazy things, but who knows? Um, you know, if like live cattle prices start to go back up again, would you expect some of this to, as that, you know, differential between those two prices get smaller, if that happens, which it might not, if speeds never, or, you know, as you said, if packers don't have a big incentive to return to normal or to return to full capacity, if they keep that capacity at, you know, 80, 85% for an extended period of time, this won't happen. But if they do start to get back to capacity and those, that price differential kind of comes closer together, would you expect the enthusiasm of around these kind of reforms to change? Or do you think that this is like people, like this is a long time coming and people are really here for this kind of activism at the moment? It is really so hard to, to know because um, so after after the Holcomb fire, um, RCAF, uh, the Organization for Competitive Markets, um, some other groups um, all held a big meeting in Omaha, Nebraska, uh, not far from where I live. Um, there were about 400 people there. This was uh, in fall of 19. Um, October 2019, they did this whole thing where they were trying to get uh, 
President Trump at the time to, to, to notice them. So there were these hashtags, uh, fair cattle markets and, and stuff like that on Twitter. And, and it went on for a while. And, and what was interesting, though, was some of the speakers at that meeting noted uh, that they had had a big meeting just like that 20 years earlier in Omaha, you know, 20 years earlier in 1994, 95 or something like that, they were completely fired up about cattle markets and the problems they were having, packer consolidation, low prices and all of that. They had a similar meeting in Omaha, Nebraska. And well, nothing really came out of that, you know, I mean, uh, but a lot of talk and a lot of discussion, nothing really changed. Uh, things got more consolidated. We had more foreign ownership since then of uh, the packing industry. We have now have, you know, the biggest feeders in our country are not only, some of them are foreign ownership, but a lot of them are owned by private equity firms that we have no concept or any uh, understanding of exactly who these people are. The biggest feed yards in the country, I'm talking hundreds of thousands of cattle are owned by a private equity firm that out of New York City that everybody's kind of, you know, you wouldn't be able to know who any of these people are if you met them on the street. And they own a significant amount of, you know, you don't hear them complaining. You know, you don't hear the guys who own uh, Five Rivers uh, feeding complaining about this stuff because we don't even know who exactly who they are anymore. Uh, the consolidation has been that big in, uh, in, in the industry. So it, to think that maybe something dramatic will change, uh, I don't know. I, I wish that, you know, uh, you know, it'd be great because we, for our cameras and our, and our video and our interviews, I, I wish that U.S. producers were more like, you know, European producers, that, that we got more, see more protest. I mean, if you saw, you know, uh, a couple hundred producers bringing live cattle or cattle manure to Washington, D.C. to make their point that, you know, things are crap right now. And if the crap, it's so crappy that we're bringing our crap to you. And, you know, and without getting arrested or shot by uh, U.S. Capitol Police dumping manure out there on the streets in Washington, D.C. to get their point across, um, you know, kind of going back to the tractor, tractor, um, rally of 1980 or whatever year it was but you know that suddenly you would get some attention and uh you know i, I remember uh once you know they were trying to emphasize um problems with dairy industry and dairy pricing uh well some guy brought like one cow to dc you know and pat Leahy and a few other guys were all standing around this one cow and i thought well if you really wanted to make a point everybody would have brought a cow, you know, <laughs> and maybe you need to do that a little bit in the beef industry. You, you really want to, to, to get the highlight, you know, you, you, you want to see that, uh, you know, ABC news was like, you won't believe what we saw at the U S Capitol today, but there were hundreds of cattle, you know, being marched around the outskirts of the Capitol with, uh, with producers protesting Packer consolidation and stuff like that then suddenly you're going to get, you know, some attention to it. And I would have some great photography, but. Uh, 
but we're not there yet. You know, um, I, I think that that is really what's going to, something else is going to need to really uh, happen to spark um, some change, but producers are going to, uh, I, I think the cattle industry, the poultry industry, the, the hog industry are really going to see some really stressful situations coming up because we've got drought now hitting the grain production area uh, areas in our country. And we already have really high prices. Uh, the, if, uh, if the drought affects the 2021 corn and soybean crops, uh, it, you know, when, uh, in the manner where we're already seeing hundred degree temperatures in, uh, in mid June, um, if the, the size of the corn crop is less than expected, the size of the soybean crop is less than expected. This demand that we're seeing from China remains, uh, strong. Um, these guys are going to become extremely stressed because of the prices of the grain and uh, oil seeds that it takes to feed their animals. Um, and, and we're going to finally begin to maybe see some, a little more vocalization from people who've been pretty quiet to, to this point. Yeah, I want to touch too on that, um, something you just the I mean, we could talk a long time about the weather because the weather is, yeah, I think causing a lot of anxiety in every direction. Um, but I want to talk, you know, I think a big part of this that kind of was talked about a bit, you know, I think around this time last year and, and hasn't been talked about as much, but I think part of this discussion is also just that, you know, there is not as much of a focus on, well, there's not necessarily as much of a focus on demand in the US, but I think one of the big takeaways from what we saw last year as the pandemic was, you know, really hitting its stride seems like a terrible turn of phrase in this case, but we'll call it that. Um, because packers were actually like, you know, the the how hot overseas markets, particularly China, were for all of this demand was was a key kind of concern for why there were shortages in the U.S. because packers were sending so much product overseas. Um, you know, how much of that, it, I'm thinking about how consumers might be pulled into this conversation, how consumers might become, you know, either an ally or at least a concerned party in this whole situation is the fact that these, you know, packers are now looking to, you know, they're not anxious to ramp production back up. They don't mind the high prices. And they're also still pretty focused on, you know, developing these overseas markets where they can get an even higher price than necessarily here in the United States. Could, is there an opportunity there in your mind, or are, are you hearing people maybe start to talk about how consumers might be affected in, um, as in, by the choices that these packers are making? Well, you even, you see it right now with, uh, with the fast food industry. Um, uh, look at how everybody in the fast food industry has come out with new chicken products, you know, uh, and the reason is because chicken is cheap, you know. Um, so, you know, in McDonald's and uh, KFC and uh, Burger King and, and uh, so on, every Hardee's, everybody is coming out with a new giant massive chicken sandwich uh, into the market because chicken is cheaper for them to, to, to buy and to produce and to sell than, than, than a giant hamburger. Um, and uh, I, I think that there is going to be, you know, so, uh, a little more concern uh, from 
your your average consumers over the price of beef uh, as we continue to uh, to roll on. But um, uh, everybody, well, you know, people will sh they shift more to pork. They shift a little more to uh, to poultry. Consumers will start to uh, to raise concerns as, um, but um, you know. Yeah, we'll also, I think, those begin to see maybe some processors and uh, and food companies begin to express more concern. Um, I remember uh, when um, when grain prices got really high in 2008. Um, Jerry Hagstrom and I were at a meeting at the National Press Club, uh, and at that time, wheat prices were extraordinarily high. Um, you, I remember executives from a couple of the biggest bakery companies in the country, they were wanting to cut off foreign aid <laughs> of shipping, shipping uh, you know, wheat overseas to, for foreign aid, uh, things of that nature because of the price of wheat um, at that time. And if you see the price of uh, whether it's beef or see the price of uh, grains get extraordinarily high, you will see that sort of same kind of response from uh, grocers or um, food processors as well, because they will, they will be the ones that will be feeling uh, somewhat of a pinch trying to buy these products, you know? Yeah. I think I just have one last question, which is, is this dust up or is this is what we're seeing in the cattle market you know especially amongst the packers and and how ranchers are responding to that um is this a boon for folks who are looking to do kind of non-conventional models direct to consumer small packing plants you know you talked touched a little bit on that but talk more about you know who it, it is there an opportunity in this kind of conflict well these Guys in, in different capacities, small processors, uh, meat lockers, um, they have been um, really in a, in a boon since the, since the beginning of the pandemic. Um, people began to look for more alternative ways to buy products. Um, and they have seen, definitely seen growth um, in, in their demand and um, processing these guys though that you know probably the only thing that is restricting them or limiting some of these places at the moment is just like everybody else is, is tight labor market um you know the there are a lot of process small processors out there that would love to expand um to uh to fill more gap uh sell more direct but uh their only limitation is, you know they might be limited on trying to find a facility to expand but uh, they're also becoming just like everybody else in the country, uh, limited, just trying to find labor. Um, the, um, I think the National Pork Producers Council uh, in the, uh, the World Pork Expo a few weeks ago, they were stressing the labor problems that they were facing uh, in different ways. But um, um, a couple of stories that we've done on processors uh, that have uh, grown on seeing opportunities is they're selling well, they're doing really profitable. Um, they would love to expand. They're, they're challenged uh, with uh, the, uh, the ability to find uh, labor uh, as well. 
Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to ask you one last question, not necessarily related to the, the beef conflict that's going on right now, but tell us, give us like a sneak preview of some stories that you're watching for the summer. What are the biggest kind of trends that you're keeping an eye on that you think might move markets or have a big impact on the political picture um, as we move into the summer? Well, the heart of the summer. Well, I think the drought is something that we're really, um, we're just starting to pay a little more attention to it because we're seeing it creep further into the, uh, into the traditional corn belt. Um, we saw that same kind of pattern happen in 2011. Uh, we're beginning to see it uh, quite a bit right now. Obviously, you know, you've got, uh, you know, corn or soybeans that have been in the ground a month and you're suddenly, you, you know, we, we had 100 degree temperatures in Nebraska and Iowa and Kansas and Oklahoma. I know because I drove through all four of those states yesterday. Um, you know, 100 degree temperatures uh, this week. Um, you know, the corn crop is, is just beginning. The soybean crop is just beginning. Uh, the spring wheat crop uh, is uh, facing um, more drought conditions in the northern plains. Uh, that's going to put pressure on just a lot of different things. Um, uh, and, and that's something that, you know, what I've been trying to work on a little bit is looking at in the debate and discussion about the infrastructure package in, in Congress and, and the focus there and how maybe we're not really looking at uh, some of the other issues uh, in uh, agriculture and in rural America that would also connect climate change and build resiliency. Um, you know, the issue around drought uh, is, is all about water, uh, having access to water. And uh, we're seeing a lot of problems with, uh, with that right now. Um, and, uh, and so trying to look at uh, what we're gonna do with this infrastructure package that will build better resiliency in rural America. I don't think we're really looking at that very much. We're focusing on roads and bridges and stuff like that. But uh, you can see from these kind of uh, weather situations, whether it's flooding in the South or droughts in the West and the Northern Plains right now, that uh, the ability having uh, access to water or ways to control floods uh, and control water is gonna be a growing issue down the line. And uh, we're not really addressing that very much in this debate about climate change in ag. Everybody is so fixated with carbon sequestration and, and carbon credits that they're not looking at resiliency. And you know, you can give a guy in Western Oklahoma all the carbon credits in the world, but if he doesn't have water to uh, grow the crop, then uh, the carbon credit doesn't really mean a whole lot. Um, and, and I think that uh, we're not really connecting some of those dots when it comes to uh, resiliency and infrastructure and what agriculture ought to be looking at in terms of uh, climate change. Absolutely. So many good points. So um, many good points. That's what I want to hear. Because, <laughs> yeah, it's true. I mean, that, uh, I think especially, you know, it was funny, there's a story somewhere, maybe the Atlantic or something about, um, you know, people are watching for the Biden administration to have like a climate bill. And this uh, like op-ed piece made the point that like Biden's not going to have a climate bill. The infrastructure bill is the climate bill. Like infrastructure, right. investing in infrastructure is investing in climate resiliency. They have to be the same thing. There's no separate 
fund. It's the one fund. It's, it's the one thing it's, it's a one-time deal, you know, and, and this is, um, Obama didn't get a climate bill because after the fight and debate about the affordable care act, Congress just didn't have the capacity, the mental capacity to, to deal with another big uh, package about anything else. Um, and and th that was the problem. So climate just kind of fell through. You changed uh, leadership, uh, you know, changed party leadership in Congress in uh, 2011 and talk about climate change went away for a long time. Um, the only way you're really going to have anything that deals with uh, climate change and agriculture is if it is in the infrastructure package. Um, and uh, so that's uh, a couple pieces I am trying to work on um, is trying to make that linkage that, you know, this is, this is the time now you have uh, these uh, upland water impounding structures across uh, the South that help uh, with flood control. They help provide water resources. Um, and uh, there's a lot more need and demand for some of these kind of things. Um, but uh, we don't really talk much about um, uh, making the connection of some of these uh, things that, you know, are actually in NRCS, they're in USDA, but they're an infrastructure situation. Um, and, uh, and we're not really talking about that uh, very well, I don't think. You can read Chris's extended coverage and read up-to-the-minute reporting on all things livestock markets and ag markets in general at DTNPF.com and in the monthly DTN Progressive Farmer magazine. This episode of Field Post was brought to you by the team at DTN Progressive Farmer, with special thanks to Chris Clayton. This episode was produced and edited by me, Sarah Mock, with support by Greg Hillier and Kylie Swanson. And a big thanks to all of you for listening. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And until then, remember, the future of farming is here. This episode, this episode of Field Post is brought to you by DTN Ag Weather Station. Are you looking to get more accurate, hyper-local weather information? By gathering weather and agronomic data directly from your own fields, DTN Ag Weather Station supports you when making targeted decisions around expensive or high-risk activities like chemical applications and irrigation. DTN's Ag Weather Station can be purchased for as low as $9 a month depending on your current customer status with DTN. If you're looking to increase your weather accuracy while saving time, please visit DTN.com.